Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. One of the great distinctives of Christian worship is the amount of singing we do. And um, it's, it's easy to focus on special music and soloists and ensembles and those are all wonderful gifts to the church. And it's easy to think that they're the ones that do all the worshiping, but really it's the congregation. Congregational singing is such a tremendous gift of, of praise to God and it's a blessing to one another. We're encouraging each other that way. And I just, I thank you for that. I thank you for your singing today. <clears throat> I think one of the big challenging things that we have is we think about Stephanie going to North Africa and ministering among people who are resistant to the gospel, Muslim people, people who believe Islam. It's easy to think that, you know, that's so dangerous She's really putting her life on the line. I mean, it's so risky. Oh, I would never do that because I'm scared. And I'm afraid of what might happen to me if those people found out that I was a Christian. They might try to behead me. They might throw me in jail. They might do something else to harm me that way. And we have great respect for Stephanie and other folks who put themselves in harm's way in order to represent Christ and, and serve him that way. But you know, the constant theme in scripture is that if you choose to live a godly life, and if you choose to be loyal and faithful and true to Jesus Christ, and if you choose to proclaim Jesus' message that he alone is the way of salvation, that he alone can forgive us of our sins and make us right with God, if you stick to that message and you proclaim it boldly, you undoubtedly will encounter opposition. It is inevitable that you will suffer persecution if you live life that way. And I know that's like the dirty secret that none of us pastors and evangelists like to talk about. Yeah, trust Jesus. Oh, by the way, you might get persecuted. You know, we, we kind of leave that part out and we don't really emphasize that. But the truth of Scripture, the constant message we hear is that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus, who preach his word and live for him, there will be persecution. Not when will it come, but, you know, not if it will come, but when it will come. It will come. The passage of scripture that we're looking at today <clears throat> challenges us that in the future there's going to rise a terrible government led by a most horribly wicked ruler that will force everyone to obey him and worship him and if you don't you get killed. And there will be such pressure that people who love Christ and follow him will have to decide do I get to eat and buy food, or do I worship Christ? Do I, do I worship Christ or I might lose my life or my kids might be taken away and, and they might be killed? And this pressure will be huge upon the lives of the people who are following Christ at that time. And you might be thinking, well, I'm sure glad Jesus is coming back and I won't be around to experience all that because I believe in the rapture and I'm gonna miss all that. And you know what, there's lots of evidence or a rapture before all that and maybe during all that or after all that, however you look at it, whatever your theological persuasion on that, the fact of the matter is we still could experience persecution before all that even takes place in the future and we need to be ready for it. We live in a Christian country. We have laws. We have a constitution that guarantees freedom of religion and we should be, we're not gonna get persecuted, oh yeah? 
Did you know that today, before the day is over, on average, there are 11 people that will be martyred for Christ around the world? 11 people today will lose their lives, not because they're a political prisoner, not because they made a bad economic choice, not because they just got sick and died, but because and only because they name the name of Jesus and follow him, according to Open Doors International, a watchdog group that monitors persecution. And, and even if that's kind of an inflated number, it still reminds us that there, there are places in the world where it's very dangerous to follow Christ, and that could happen here. Think about it, about 4,000 people a year lose their lives because they love Jesus and they preach his gospel. What are you going to do if persecution comes? I don't say this to frighten you. I don't say this to intimidate you, to scare you in any way. I am actually saying this to me and to you to remind us that a persecution is inevitable. How will you handle it? The passage of Scripture that we're reading today from the book of Revelation tells us in the middle of that chapter that it is a call. It is a call for faithfulness and patience on the part of believers. We are called to be loyal to Jesus unto death. To be loyal to Jesus unto death because he is the God who is loyal to you and to me. And so today, you and I have to make this choice. Am I going to be loyal to him or not? And I might say today, I'll be loyal to Jesus. Oh, you can count on me, Jesus. I won't betray you like Peter in the upper room telling Jesus, oh, don't worry, I'll never deny you. But when push comes to shove, when the pressure falls, will you be ready to do be loyal to Christ, or will you deny him? And the only way I know how to get loyal and to be strengthened and gain the courage that we desperately need is to remember how loyal Christ is to you and to me, and we'll talk about this in this passage as well. So I invite you now to take your Bible. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 13. This is page 1035, the war against the saints. Now, Look, when I say war against the saints, I'm not talking about whether or not you have permission to say Merry Christmas. I'm not talking about whether or not you have permission to tell people God bless you. I had a man say to me when he dropped off a package the other day from one of the, the carriers that bring uh, goods that we've ordered here, some office supplies, and he said, well, God bless you, sir. I'm allowed to say that because I know you're a Christian in a church. He made a very quick disclaimer like that in saying that. And, and that's not the... That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about that, you know, it's, it's love Jesus and follow him and lose your, your head or deny him and go along and get along with the powers that be that are anti-Christ and against him. We be loyal to Christ unto death. That's what we're called to do. Now, we're reading in Revelation because we're trying to see how God's on the move through history. And just when you think evil's going to triumph, we learn in Revelation that Jesus wins. And we see this pageantry of, of the future, all of these stories, these images, these, these, these different uh, pictures of, of future events in a very powerful way unfolding. And John receives this as a vision, and he declares in the middle of all of this, this story of this world empire and this world religion that puts tremendous pressure upon the followers of Jesus to give in and to yield and to deny Christ. And the message in the passage is constantly, be loyal to Jesus even unto death. 
And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard and its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth to utter haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain if anyone has an ear let him hear if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity he goes if anyone is to be slain with the sword with the sword he must be slain here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints then i saw another beast rising up out of the earth It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword, yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is God's word. I don't know about you, but this sounds like a screenplay of some horror movie. You know, some, some kind of crazy fantasy type of thing. Monsters coming up out of the ocean, monsters coming up out of the earth, and they're terrorizing everybody, and this small band of people who love Jesus are trying to flee for their safety, and the monsters are seeking to crush them and destroy them. But in the middle of this, you see it there at the end of verse 10, is this call to faithfully endure this persecution and don't deny Jesus. Love him and be loyal to him no matter what. Notice the two monsters that are 
in the, the scene here. There's actually a third monster as well. I call your attention back to the end of chapter 12 where there was a dragon who represents Satan, the devil, who's trying to chase and destroy a woman that represents the followers of God. And the dragon is persecuting her and making war against her. And when chapter 12 ends, that giant red seven-headed dragon is standing on the beach by the ocean, and as it's standing there in verse one of chapter 13, it sees and John sees this monster rising up out of the water, and all I could think of is like Godzilla coming up out of the ocean, walking up onto the beach, you know, just slowly, progressively coming up out of the water as John's watching there, he sees its head, and then he sees its shoulders, and he sees its body, and then finally, there it is standing out there on the beach in all of its, you know, uh, horrific terror and and ugliness and grotesqueness, this monster, this beast standing there. John describes it in such a way that sounds a lot like uh, Daniel chapter seven, different empires and kingdoms that will come about in the present day and in the future days when Daniel's writing. And he kind of puts them all together and says, this is what this final kingdom is like. It's got a body of a leopard. It's got seven heads. It's got 10 horns. And, and, and it's got feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. And you're saying, man, what a weird hybrid mutant kind of monster that we're seeing here. And I think all that, that John is trying to say as he describes this monster is that this is such a ferocious, violent, terrorizing, unstoppable creature. It has seven heads, just like the dragon has seven heads. It has 10 horns, just like the dragon has 10 horns. It's, it's kind of in the, the dragon's image, this monster, that represents a kingdom, an empire, and the leader of this empire and this kingdom as well. It is interesting that when the, the beast that comes up out of the ocean is described, the horns are mentioned first and then the seven heads unlike the dragon where the heads are mentioned first and then the horns. And that could just simply be because this is a representation of a kingdom that's driven by military power and military might. It's a a military conqueror who's been able to rampage all throughout the earth and bring every other kingdom under his authority. He rules and dominates them as well. Several things about this first monster that I want you to notice, and I'm just kind of summarizing some of the things that we see in the narrative here. I want you to note that he is a worldwide ruler, a worldwide ruler. It says that every tribe and nation and kingdom, all people will follow him and all people will have to obey him and everyone will worship him. He rules over every nation. There's no one that is excluded from his rule and control. There's no sovereignty of individual countries or nations or economic blocks or political unions of of different kingdoms. Every other people group, every other language, every other nation on earth, every city, every state will be under the authority of this worldwide dictator and this, this monster. He will have total control and everyone will have to obey him. He has the military power to force this upon the inhabitants of earth even in the most far-flung reaches of earth. The darkest, deepest jungles, the biggest and most powerful cities are under his authority and under his control. Something else I want you to notice about this second beast is that he's worshiped by everybody. When the Caesars of the first century began to accumulate more and more power and more and more authority, they also got more and more prideful and haughty and arrogant. And they began demanding that people would worship them. 
would honor them. They took names of gods upon themselves. In fact, when this beast comes up out of the water, when John notices the seven heads and notices the crowns on the different horns and things like that, he also notices names on the heads of the monster. And it says they're blasphemous names. Every time I've read that in the past, I thought, oh, you know, he just cusses a lot. He's very profane. He's using a lot of profanity or things like that. Curse words, you know, disgusting things like that. That's not it at all. It's names like Son of God, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Almighty God. This monster is claiming to be God in the flesh. That's blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to have the right to be worshipped and served as God. And so he's claiming that, and that's what those names are claiming as well. And and people begin to worship him and, and, and serve him. Not only that, but it says that people are so enthralled with this monster because it looks like he died and then came back to life. You notice three times in chapter 13 that he's described the monster that had the mortal wound and yet lives. Several places in the, in the chapter. It, he has this mortal wound, yet he's, he lives. He was, he was attacked with the sword. He was killed with the sword, and yet he lives. It, it's, it's like a resurrection, It's like he died somehow and then came back, was resuscitated, resurrected, and brought back to life. And people see these names and people see his authority and people see this this resurrection, counterfeit resurrection of this, this leader and his kingdom and people say, who can stand against the beast? Who can fight against him? And they begin to worship him. They begin trusting him. They sing his praise. They honor him. They obey him. Not just paying the taxes, not just, you know, doing his service, but actually worshiping him, depending on him for their provision, for their security, and saying all their lives depends upon this beast, upon this monster, this kingdom, and this emperor that rules over all the earth. There's something else I want you to notice about this king and his kingdom, this antichrist is that he is hell-bent. Can I just say it that way in the strongest way? He is just hell-bent on destroying the people who follow Christ. He wages war against the Christians. Notice what it says in verse 11. This beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. He has permission to kill Christians. He tries to stamp them out. He's a lot like Kim Jong-un of North Korea who says the greatest enemy facing North Korea is not the United States, but the Christians in his own country. They're the enemy of the state, number one. And so that's why there's all this intense persecution because the Kim family and Kim Jong-un himself, just as his father and his grandfather were, were absolutely convinced that if the Christians have their way, then they will be overthrown. That regime will come to an end. They're terrified of the Christians. The beast is terrified of the Christians. The Antichrist that we're reading about will be terrified of the Christians and will do everything he can to destroy them, to wage war against them, and to kill them. In the midst of all this terrible persecution, all this wrath and anger that's brought by this beast upon the followers of Christ, those who trust in Jesus and rely on him, in the middle of all this, John writes a very important word in verses 9 and 10. 
he uses that little phrase that we heard in the letters to the seven churches. It was like a call to attention, like pay attention. This letter is for you, even if it wasn't written for you. God still wants to say something through it to you. And he says, Let, if anyone has an ear, do you have any ears today? <laughs> even if they don't work so well, pay attention. Okay, turn the hearing aid up and listen. He who has an ear, let him hear. Here's what they're to hear. If anyone is taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. What he's simply saying is God's in charge and God is working through all this and if he allows for you to be arrested during this time, whoever's alive and following Christ, if you're arrested, you'll go to prison. Accept that. Represent Christ and follow me in that. If you're destined to be executed for your faith, accept that and be loyal to me unto death because this is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. In spite of this tyrannical world wicked power, be faithful unto Jesus even though they want to destroy you. Understand that God is at work even in this situation. Be loyal to Jesus even unto death. And just when you think it can't get any worse, I mean, one beast is bad enough, one monster is bad enough, there's another monster that John sees rise that helps the first beast. And that's described beginning in verse 11. John says he sees this other beast rise up, not out of the ocean this time, but out of the earth. And it's a beast that looks like a lamb, has two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, I, when I see the little lambs, I'm hearing, bah, bah, like that. And this is kind of like a ferocious dragon. Only I'm not thinking it's a, a screaming dinosaur like from Jurassic Park or a dragon that's ready to belch fire out. I think instead what we have, it's the same kind of lying and deception and blasphemy and slander that the dragon was speaking in chapter 12 when he was waging war against the woman that represents the people of God and trying to kill the Christ child, the child that was born with the rod of iron that rules over the nations that we read about in chapter 12. This creature, this monster that comes up out of the earth, it looks gentle. It looks like a little lamb. It's got little horns like a lamb, but it's ferocious and it's lying and it's deception. It's deceit and trickery. And there are two things that this lamb monster does to deceive people, to get them to worship the first beast. The first thing that he does is he deceives them through miraculous signs, and there's a bunch of them. Because it says that he's even able to call down fire out of heaven. Uh, he, in verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down out of heaven in front of people. People witness this. They see it. They see this fire coming down like God was a, enabled the prophet Elijah call down fire out of heaven to consume the sacrifice on top of Mount Carmel that we read about in the Old Testament. And this prophet is able to do that. And not only that, I mean, here's something that's really wild. It says, and by these signs, he was allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make a huge image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So all of this is going on, these miraculous signs, this lying and deception, this slander and deceit, all of this is taking place. And this beast is able to get the people of earth to erect this massive statue, an idol, 
in the image of the, the world leader, the world dictator, the Antichrist. It's a lot like what happened in Daniel chapter 3 when Nebuchadnezzar built that 90-foot tall golden statue of himself and insisted that all the leaders of his empire bow down before it, but there were the three Hebrew Jewish young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that didn't do it. Remember that? Remember that story? That's a lot like what's going on here. Only this false prophet, this second monster that comes up out of the earth, he's going to coerce and deceive the people of earth into building this statue. And he's going to do one more great deception. Some way, somehow, that second monster is able to animate that statue and make it talk. Now, in the first century, some of the priests and some of the prophets in the different temples that worshiped the different idols, they had tubes that they would speak through through a back room, kind of like the wizard at the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, that kind of a thing. You know, they, could, they had pulleys and they had ventriloquists and they had all this kind of things to make it like the, the statue was talking, you know, even though it was made of stone or wood or metal. You know, the statue's talking, I can hear it. And it's really a ventriloquist behind the curtain. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think there's something far worse. I think this prophet has been given the supernatural demonic power to actually make this statue in some measure become alive and actually talk. I don't know how. I don't know where it comes from. But there's this ability to do that. I don't think it's a gimmick because I think people would see through that. You can say, well, you know, the last days there's a great delusion. Maybe they're deceived. Maybe the smoke and mirrors somehow or the animatronics somehow trick them into thinking. This is just sleight of hand, right? I don't think so. I think there's something bigger going on here that's more diabolical. And this is what's taking place at this time. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Why would God let them do this? This doesn't make sense. Why would he let people be tricked? Why would he let these false signs come? Because remember, this is the final battle, all of this taking place here. Not the big battle of Armageddon, but this final decision time for humanity. Will you choose God and his truth, or will you choose Satan and his wickedness? What will you do? And God is permitting this tremendous trickery and evil to take place there, to ferret out and, and, and sift out, so to speak, who really who really belongs to him and who doesn't? Who is willing to trust him and who's not? Who's willing to be loyal to him no matter what, even unto death? But not only does the false prophet, this second beast that looks like a lamb, not only does he deceive people with these demonic signs, but he coerces them. He puts tremendous pressure on them to give in and serve the beast as well. He coerces them this way. And he does this coercion through, eco through economics, through finances, through uh, buying and selling of goods. Notice what it says. He caused, um, he caused this image of the beast to speak that he might cause all those who do not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And it also causes all, and he's emphatic here, notice this, all, I mean, he could have stopped right there, but he goes into detail. All, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. In other words, nobody's exempt from this. Just because you know somebody, you pay a bribe, you get out of it. No, everybody has to take this mark. Everybody does. 
Slave people, free people, rich people, poor people, old people, young people. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you live. Everybody has to take that mark. Now, that mark is absolutely essential if you're going to buy or sell. What is that mark? I don't know. I'm not sure. The word that he's using there is the idea of a tattoo or a brand. And by brand, I'm talking about a hot iron that touches your skin and burns it with a symbol on it. Roman soldiers would have that done to show their loyalty and obedience to the emperor. Slaves would have that done to show that they were owned by a certain master. If you got branded on the forehead, that was kind of a, a, a sign of shame, like maybe you were forced to get the brand that way. But if you submitted to it and you allowed your hand to be branded in some way or tattooed in some way, it indicated that you belong to the person that gave you the brand. All of the people of earth are going to be required to show their loyalty, their obedience, and their worship to this worldwide dictator by having that brand put on their skin of their hand, their right hand, or on their forehead. Some people have asked, well, maybe that's a barcode. You know, just kind of have it scanned there, like at the checkout, at the supermarket. And I don't think it's a barcode. Others have said, well, what about those RFIDs? You know, those radio you know, frequency ID chips that they're inserting into people's hands so that they can check out. You know, they just kind of wave their hand and they're paying for it because it's all tied to their credit account. Is it, is it that? Don't take that. I don't think it's that either. If you get one of those and you check out faster, more power to you. I don't have a problem with that. I don't think that's unbiblical at all. I don't think this is necessarily saying that tattoos are bad or brands are bad. But if it's the beast brand and the beast tattoo, better not take it. Do not take it. He describes this mark as having the name of the beast or the number of the beast. And then you get to verse 18, which I think is one of the weirdest I mean, Revelation is a weird book. But this is like the weirdest of the weirdest part of Revelation. Because it talks about, here requires wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. Huh? What is that talking about? I'm not exactly sure but I'm going to give you my best understanding of this. In the first century world, it was not an uncommon practice. It was something that people did frequently if they wanted to express their love or admiration or say criticism about somebody. Sometimes what they would do is that they would come up with a little code or formula and turn their name into a number. That's a, a gematria is what that's called, or cryptology. I know it sounds like you've got to go get your decoder ring out of Cracker Jacks or a cereal box and, you know, how do I figure this out, what this code means? It's not quite that way, but the Greek language and the Hebrew language, the language of the New Testament and the language of the Old Testament, both of their languages used letters to represent numbers. English does not do that. So you can't say Ronald Wilson Reagan is the Antichrist just because all three of his names have six letters, 666. No, that doesn't work. Don't do that. Okay. And by the way, I heard somebody the other day say that President Trump is the Antichrist. Have you ever noticed when he gives a speech, he always is making a gesture and he always does something like this? Have you seen that? It's just kind of instinctive. He does that. 
That's the number six. Right there. Does it three times. Six, six, six. Ooh. I'm joking. I saw it on the internet. That's how I know it's true, okay? People have been trying to figure out who this beast is and what's the significance of 666. If you take the Pope's name, you can turn it into 666. During the Reformation, people took Martin Luther's name and turned it into 666. Every president in my lifetime has been called the Antichrist because you can make their name turn into 666. You can take Henry Kissinger's name and turn it into 666, the leader of the United Nations into 666. You can probably take your name and my name and turn them into 666. And you're looking at me saying, I don't need to turn your name into 666, I already know it is. So anyway, you get what I'm saying. You can develop any kind of a code and make it say whatever you want it to say. You can turn anybody's name into 666. So what is John doing when he says this? Why does he say this? He is appealing to something that was a common practice. For example, there are letters, there are uh, inscriptions on statues, there are parchments of documents, uh, correspondence that have been collected from the first century, saved, they didn't rot. And uh, there are places where the woman I love, the woman I want to marry, she's so beautiful and her number is 487. And the people reading that had to figure out, well, who's 487? Is it Sally or is it Susie? I forget which number means what. And so the, the, the point is, is that those kind of things went on. During the first century, people talked about Nero, especially the Christians, because Nero was such a tyrannical Caesar. He was so evil. He was so violent. He, he killed his own mother. He blamed the burning of Rome upon the Christians and had them slaughtered in the Colosseum. He had them burned alive on crosses in the Colosseum and then fed the rest of the lions. He did that in the Christians of Rome. That truly happened. Christians saw Nero as the epitome of this wicked kind of man that's described in Revelation chapter 13. It's interesting that if you take Nero's name and you say Nero Caesar and you transliterate it into Hebrew and you line up all the letters according to the numerical value and each letter had a value and it had a higher value if it was at the beginning of the letter name or at the end of the name, there were higher values placed on that letter as well. When you take Nero Caesar in Hebrew and you count up the numerical value, guess what you get? 666. There's a variation of the spelling. And when you add those numbers up, guess what you get? 616. Oh, by the way, footnote three, excuse me, footnote, uh, what number is it here? Footnote eight, after 666, some manuscripts say 616. All I'm trying to say is I think the people around the time that this was written, if they would use some of the codes and cryptology that was common practice either in Hebrew or Greek and apply the name of Caesar, they got 666 or they got 616 and they began to understand that this person that's being described is so wicked, he's like Nero. And by the way, there was a rumor going around the first century world that said that Nero was going to come back that he really hadn't died. It's like after World War II, people said Hitler fled to Argentina. And they were looking for him. Some of you are still saying Elvis is still in the building. Same kind of a thing. They were convinced that Nero was going to come back resurrected. 
So there are these hints that as John is writing that, this world dictator who's coming in the future, he's going to be so cruel, so barbaric, so terrible, and so wicked. He's like Nero was to the Christians in Rome when he executed the Apostle Paul, when he executed the Apostle Peter, when he slaughtered all the Christians in the Colosseum. This world dictator is going to be just like that. You need to be watching out for him. Am I saying that Nero's going to get resurrected somehow? I don't think it's literally that, but I think it's the idea that he's like that. A Nero-like ruler that will be so terrifying. So when we see all of this deception and coercion, I mean, imagine this, this coercion. Imagine that you go to the store and all of a sudden this law is now, you've got to take that mark if you want to buy food, formula for your baby. You, you need food for your family. The landlord comes and says, I need to collect the rent. Or you want to transfer money out of your bank or you want to do something like that and all of a sudden you can't because you don't have that mark. And they say, well, we can gladly give you the mark over here. Just take it and you can finish all your transactions and make all your purchases. And you have to say, no, I can't. I don't want that mark because I belong to Jesus. And the police then come and want to seize you and haul you off, give you one last chance to recant, or they execute you. You see, the pressure is, if you don't give in to the beast, if you don't give in to his state empire, if you don't give in to the state religion that's foisted upon us by the false prophet, this propaganda minister, this one that looks like a lamb but really speaks like a dragon, if you don't give in to them, then you lose everything. Where's your security? Where's your well-being? Where's your health? Where's your protection? Where's your comfort in life? Let alone all the peer pressure that will be upon you to take that beast. That beast's mark, excuse me. You're going to lose all that. Take the mark. Go along to get along. Just take it. You don't have to mean it in your heart. Just take it. And yet that's the moment of truth that everyone at that time and everyone today when they face persecution, it's the same thing. You don't have to mean it in your heart. Just take it. But Jesus says, if you love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will surrender to me and be loyal to me and obey me and you'll, deny, you'll never deny me. You'll be loyal to me unto death. Because he has always been loyal to you and to me. Three things I want you to notice about Jesus' loyalty and why he's worth trusting and not denying. Think about this. Throughout this passage, we see the Antichrist gets this authority. He has this power. The false prophet has this authority. He has this power. And it looks like the dragon, it looks like Satan is giving this out to them. But there are many places in this passage where it just simply says, and he was given this authority. And he was given this power. He was given the ability to make this happen or to do that. And they're all passive voice in the third person. He was given. And the implication here that's very strong as we saw in chapter 12 and chapter 11, that God gave this. That Jesus is in control. That Jesus is allowing these things to happen. I mean, even this beast, 
As terrible and tyrannical as his rule is over earth, he doesn't even rule as long as a sitting president in the United States. He only works, it says, for 42 months. Three and a half years. The 1,260 days that we read about in chapter, chapter 12. The time, times, and half a time. It's a limited period of time. There are constraints, there are limitations on what he can do. Why? Because Jesus Christ is in control and he's in authority. Go back to the opening chapters of Revelation and we see in chapter 5 there's this gigantic scroll with seven seals and Almighty God is on his throne and the question is asked, who's worthy to open the scroll? Who's worthy to unfold the history of, of the future? Who can make it come to pass? And there's only one person in the entire universe who has the authority and power and worth to be able to open that scroll. And it's Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world and yet lives again. Jesus Christ is unrolling the scroll. Jesus Christ is making all these events take place. Listen, if you want to trust somebody and worship somebody, worship the one who's truly in control. Yield your life to the one who really is in charge. The dragon looks like he's in charge. The beast looks like he's in charge. The false prophet looks like he's in charge, but he's not. Yes, they set themselves up as a phony, fake trinity. The dragon assuming the position of God, even though he's just a creature under the authority of God. The beast, names of Jesus, looking like he died and came back to life as a counterfeit Jesus, a counterfeit son of God, a false son of God. The false prophet sounding an awful light like the Holy Spirit, leading worship, calling attention to the first beast. It looks like the Holy Spirit, but it's not. It's an unholy spirit. It's an unholy son of God. It's an unholy God. It's an evil, diabolical trinity and not the truth. And even though we may worship or be compelled or forced to worship something like that, we have to choose to worship the one who's in charge because that dragon, that beast, and that lamb beast, they have their authority only because Jesus lets them do it. And again, some of you are saying, what the heck is he thinking? Why does he do that? Why does he let Satan get away with that stuff? The beast do that stuff. And why does he have all his people killed? Why is this going on? Can I ask you this question? Why in the world did Jesus have to die to save you for your sin, from your sins? What the heck is that all about? It's about God showing his love and conquering evil by the sacrifice of his own life for you and for me. Death is swallowed up in the victory of Jesus enduring death for us and rising from the dead, vindicating that he's conquered Satan, sin, and death once and for all. We get to follow Jesus. Those of us who will be living, if we're alive at that time, going through that, if that's what what happens, we get to share his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings, and we get to experience his victory as well. There's another reason why we need to trust Jesus and be loyal to him no matter what, even unto death. Simply put here is this. Jesus secures us. Our lives are in his hand. It says that everyone that worshiped the beast, they gave in to him, they surrendered to him from every tribe and nation, they worshiped him. Everyone whose name, this is verse eight, everyone whose name who had not been written 
from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If your name is in the book of life, you're safe. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, if you've been registered there, I'm not asking if you're a citizen of our country. I'm not asking if you're a member of this church on the membership rolls of the church. Is your name there? That's not what's important. What's important is your name in the Lamb's book of life. You say, how do I get my name in the Lamb's book of life? Trust the Lamb. Put your faith in Him. Be born again. And God already knows, according to this passage, as to who's going to do that. And He makes sure that their name is already there. God is working and moving to bring you and I to salvation. And once we put our trust in Him, we are secure in His salvation. And no one can take that away from us. You're in the hands of Jesus, and no one can take you from Him. That's a second reason to trust Him and not deny Him. But a third reason is simply this. This Jesus not only controls everything and he not only sustains, um, um, secures his people, but he ultimately sustains us even in the midst of the persecution. He provides for us and takes care of us. The beast says, I won't give you any food unless you take my mark. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life and I will provide for your every need. The beast and the dragon say, if you don't bow down and worship us and take that mark, you're going to lose your reputation. And Jesus says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. I love you and you're secure in what I think of you. The beast says, you're going to lose your health. And Jesus is our healer. The beast says, you're going to lose your life. You're going to die. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He has overcome death. He is alive forevermore. He holds the keys of death and hell. And he gives life to everyone who trusts in him. In other words, everything that the beast and the dragon and the false prophets say, you will lose this unless you give in and surrender and worship us. Jesus is saying, I'm everything you need. You don't have to give in to them at all. You can be loyal to me because I will always be loyal to you. I gave my life for you on the cross. I went through death and hell for you after my crucifixion. And I am raised from the dead. I have ascended into glory. And I am coming back in power and glory as the true king of kings and as the true Lord of lords. And you don't have to accept or embrace any of the sham fakery of the state and the state religion. You don't have to embrace that. You don't have to give in to that. You can be loyal to Jesus even unto death because he was loyal to you unto death. I keep thinking about that whole 666 thing. 666. Such a bizarre, weird thing. Don't you agree? I, I think. Maybe you think it's cool. I think it's strange. But you know, if... If you were trying to say perfection using Bible letters and numbers and things like that, you would say 777. That would be perfection, right? And in a sense, having a name that can be written out, 666 is like saying incomplete, 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 not perfection, perfection, perfection. Wicked, wicked, wicked. Obsolete, obsolete, obsolete. Vanity, vanity, vanity. Human, human, human. Sinful, sinful, sinful. That's what 666 is saying. 777 is perfection. Do you know what you get when you take the name of Jesus in Greek and you add up the numerical values of that name? 
You don't have your secret decoder ring? Get this. Eight, eight, eight. 888. That's like super perfection. That's like another grade above perfection. It's like the best of the best of the best. It's like everything that you could possibly need, everything that you're possibly looking for. I know we're just playing with numbers. I know it sounds like just a code. But you have to understand that Jesus is all you need. Accept no substitutes. Be loyal to him even if it means death because he has been loyal to you through death and into life for you. A couple big questions. One, is your name in the book of life? If it's not in the book of life, you've got to get that squared away today by trusting in Christ. If you feel the Spirit of God tugging on your heart, saying, I need to trust in Jesus. Today's the day to trust in Him. If you've already trusted in Him and you belong in Him, then you need to be saying, God, help me to remember that everything I need is in Christ. And so I don't have to compromise. I don't have to give in to temptation. I can resist evil and I can be loyal to Christ no matter what. And He will see you through if you surrender to Him in that way. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we admit to you that all these things just seem so bizarre when we think of the future and these monsters and the mark of the beast and the number 666 and all these things. It just, it seems so frightening and terrifying and just flat out weird. But Lord, we know that you're speaking the truth and your truth is good for us and profitable for us. And so I pray that through all this, we would see that no matter how horrific how tyrannical the state and religion may be in opposing us who follow Christ. Help us to see, Lord, that even today we can depend on You. We can trust in You. And we don't have to be afraid. And we can be loyal and true to You no matter what. Help us to be loyal unto death. Thank You, Jesus, for being loyal to us and giving your life in death for us that we might live with you forever. Help us, Lord, serve you, we pray faithfully. Amen.